Well, this morning is the final lesson in our series on the marriage rules. Uh, But do not be dismayed if you have questions. The Wednesday night class will continue on and on and on, I'm sure, as you can bring any of your questions, uh, concerns, or texts that you want to talk about. Uh, We've been using the Wednesday night as an opportunity for your response and your thoughts and your questions about uh, what God says for marriage. And so we'll continue to do that, uh, even though that this series uh, will be ending this morning. Uh, Over the next few weeks and through the uh, month of November, uh, our plan is to do on Sunday morning a series that I'm uh, calling Different by Design. Uh, I figure we just talked about what God says regarding marriage in particular. I think it's extremely important in our day and time right now to talk about what God says about men and women. What does God say it means to be a man? What does God say it means to be a woman? What does that look like? Uh, And so that's what we're going to be spending our time then over the next month uh, doing some things regarding that. So I I hope that you will look forward to that and that you will uh, be here for that as well. As was read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 25 through 40. And we have talked about how the Apostle Paul is answering the questions that the Corinthian Christians have been writing to him. And we come in verse 25 to a new series, new group of people. We observe back in verse 8 where he said, to the unmarried and widows. In verse 10, he moves to the married and speaks to to them. In verse 12, he speaks to the rest, which we see as a Christian who is married to a non-Christian and what they are supposed to do. And now in verse 25, we have this uh, discussion of who he speaks to uh, that the most of your translations will say now concerning the virgins. And I think it's important for us to stop and consider some of the things that we might understand about who he is writing to. Uh, As we think about this for a minute, it can't be that he's just simply writing to single people. There's a number of reasons why. First, back in verse 8, he talked to those who are unmarried and gave the directions uh, to them that they are able to marry uh, and, and so forth. But not only that, is that really one of the reasons why? Why we can't understand this text to be merely talking to single people. You will notice in verse 27, he will ask a, a question where he says, are you bound to a wife? And you go, now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking to single people. <laughs> How can you ask that question? Uh, if you are writing to what the literally is the virgins, then how are you asking a question if you are bound to a wife, do not seek to be free? And so I'm kind of giving you an insight into, here's how I study the scriptures, and I hope you'll do it the same way. You read a verse and you go, now what do you mean by that? And so when you put these pieces together, we have to ask the question, how can the Apostle Paul be addressing a group of people that are apparently single, that he calls virgins, and yet at the same time would be able to say, are you bound to a man or are you bound to a woman? Are you bound to a wife? Are you bound to a husband? How could you possibly say that? And I believe there's only one solution to that 
conundrum. And that is what the ESV uses, is that he is writing to the betrothed. Now, the betrothed is a little bit different than what we have in our society. We call it being engaged. You are engaged to be married. But in our world, there's a couple of things that usually happen with engagement. One, it could just kind of go on and on and on. And two, it can be broken off at any time. That's not how engagement worked in the ancient Near Eastern culture. You just weren't simply engaged. When you became engaged or betrothed, that that was a legally binding uh, agreement. You were joined together, even though you were not considered married yet. You were considered so joined together, so legally bound together, that it required a divorce to separate. We have a great illustration of that in the New Testament. If you remember Joseph and Mary, we have Mary becomes pregnant by miraculous means of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, who is betrothed or engaged to Mary, is going to divorce her. Because he believes that she has been unfaithful to him. And so notice it's not just simply, okay, I break off the engagement and walk away. You weren't legally bound together that you were to be married and it required a divorce to be able to separate. So I just give you a sense of that, that that would make the most sense of what we were looking at, of how you can have somebody who is single, as verse 25 opens now to the virgins, while at the same time say, are you bound to a wife or a husband? Is that you were betrothed. You're bound to somebody, but you're not formally married quite yet. And so he's going to deal with some of the issues now that surround them. And the reason why this is going to be useful for us, and it's going to be what the title of our message is, is he's going to talk about a scene and a scenario and circumstances by which they are going through very difficult times, and he's going to give them some instructions about that. In fact, that's what makes, as you study this paragraph, it is really, really important to make two critical observations. And last week, one of the observations I made with you was, please, please, please be a careful Bible student. When you study the scriptures, study it carefully. We talked about that because of verses 17 to 24. People often dive bomb right into that paragraph and neglect the fact that those verses are talking to a Christian married to a non-believer. And Jump in there and go, well, see, you can just divorce and do whatever you want to do. And that's not what Paul was talking about. Here is another text where people jump in out of context and misuse some of the statements that are made in this paragraph. And so I want to show them to you. So first we have to make some critical observations. You will notice in verse 25, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Very important to observe here. He does not say what I am telling you is not the command of God. And we're going to observe that in the reading many times where he's going to say, now here's what you should do, but if you don't do it, it's not a sin. And he opens that way here in verse 25. What I'm giving you is my judgment about these things. This is not the Lord's command. In fact, if you jump to the very end of the paragraph, verse 40, notice he says it again that this is in my judgment. 
And so this paragraph is boxed by those two statements. This is not the command of God, but this is my judgment as to what you should do. So this is an advising then regarding these betrothal situations. Here is a couple who's engaged to be married. What should they do? And Paul is going to give some counsel and instructions to them about that. The second thing that is extremely important to observe is in verse 26, our other key observation, where he says there, I think that in view of the present distress... Many translations say present distress. A few of them say impending crisis. The word either means it's happening right now or it's about to happen. It can be used either way. And so he is saying in regards to this certain present or impending distress or crisis, we doesn't tell us exactly what it is. We surmise that he might be talking about a persecution that's coming against the Christians. Some major difficulties is going to happen against them. And so he's writing to them and is going to give them advice because there is a time of suffering that is upon them. So as we go forward in this study, these two things are so important to hang over this text. One, what he is saying is to the betrothed regarding these situations, that is his judgment, not the command of God. And second, the reason why he's saying these things is because there is a present distress or impending crisis that is about to fall upon these Christians. With that in mind, that will make what we're about to read here, I think, a whole lot easier. Where people will come into these verses and say, well, see, it's bad to be married, or you should be single, or things like that. They'll rip these verses well out of their context, and not keep in mind what he's saying is advising regarding a distress that is about to come upon them. And so what should the betrothed, who are not married yet, but what should these engaged people do? So notice that's how he opens then in verse 26. Then in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So something that we have seen Paul do many times. And in this relationship that you have, don't seek to break it apart. And he says the same thing in verse 20, 27. If you are bound to a wife, do not seek to be free. If you're free from a wife, do not seek a wife. The whole reason he says that is because of a present distress. Stress. He's not saying, now don't get married. We've just spent 24 verses of him talking about why marriage is good and why you were supposed to be married and wow, that's a good thing. So he's not saying here in verse 27, now if you're not married, don't get married. That's not what he's doing right here. He's talking about the betrothed. He's saying in verse 27, if you're already betrothed, if you're already in that condition, don't seek to get out of it. That's fine. Stay betrothed. But if you're not engaged yet, don't get engaged. And the reason why is because he's trying to deal with this present distress. Notice that he explains that as he moves forward, verse 28. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. He's saying, now, it would be better for you not to go ahead and get married. But if you do, that's fine. It's not a sin if you become married. But here's the reason why that he says all that. Notice verse 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Again, and I'm going to say this an awful lot. 
He's not speaking in general about marriage and singleness and saying, okay, if you get married, you've got a whole lot of worldly troubles that are going to follow you, and I'm trying to keep you from all the pain and suffering that come with getting married. No, 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 no. That's not what he's doing here. That would just overturn everything that he said in this chapter. It would overturn what creation said when God looked at man and said it was not good for him to be man to be alone. The Apostle Paul does not come along and say, no, it's far better for you to be alone because, man, you're going to have some trouble if you're going to have a wife. That's not what he's doing right here. The context is so important. There is an impending crisis. There is a distress that's coming. And because of that, he says, I'm trying to spare you of this trouble that's going to come. You are going to experience difficulties. And so now what he's going to do is explain why. Why would it be better for the Christian not to get married at this time? And that's what happens in the in the rest of this paragraph is he's going to explain to them. Here's why. Now, before I explain that, why let me shoot down one other fun, false teaching. Please then notice with verse 27 that verse 27 is not saying, so if you're divorced, it's okay to go get remarried. That's a real fun one that I've read oodles and oodles of times of verse 27 where it says, okay, don't seek to get divorced, right? And then they'll turn to verse 28 and say, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned. You're out of context. Not what we're talking about. We're not even talking to the married right here. We are talking to the virgins. We are talking to the betrothed. We're talking to the single people and saying, if you're betrothed, fine, stay that way. If you're not betrothed, you really shouldn't get married because of this distress that's coming. Verse 28. But if you do, that's okay. Haven't sinned, no problem. That's what he's doing right here. And to use these verses any other way is to misuse Paul completely to try to justify sinful marriages that God did not allow. If you're married, go back to verses 10 and 11 and camp right there and stay there and don't leave there because those were the two verses that were written to the married. That was was God's instructions there. Now, with that, here's in verse 29 is his explanation as to why he is giving this direction that the betrothed should not marry. He gives it in in beginning in verse 28. He starts it with, you're going to have worldly troubles. And he said, now what do you mean by that, Paul? That's why I like verse 29. This is what I mean. (laughs) How is it that we're going to have worldly troubles? Here's the explanation that, that he gives here. From verse 29 to verse 31, you'll read these scenarios and what he's basically saying is, this distress that is going to come upon you is going to bring great upheaval to your lives. Everything that you've known about what it means in your life is now going to be thrown completely upside down. And that's why he uses all of these opposites. This is, again, not a text for uh, a married man to say, well, you know, if you have a wife, just pretend like you don't have one. Verse 29, from now on, let those who have wives live as those they have none. That's not saying, okay, now you can go live like a single man, married people. That's not what we're talking about. He is describing in these verses how upside down life is going to be. And so from morning to not morning to not morning to morning to married to unmarried, this is going to turn their world upside down. And so he uses these kinds of illustrations to speak to the concern that he has for them in this situation. Now, why would that be such a big deal? The reason why this is a big deal is he is now going to note here 
is you'll see in verse 31, he says, the present form of this world is passing away and I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife and his interests are divided. You'll notice in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to restrain, put lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. We get a sense now of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He says, look, there is a present distress, an impending crisis that is coming upon you. And it's going to turn your world upside down. It is to use the words there, verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. That's a pretty strong way to say everything you know about your life is going to be dramatically changed. And so his concern is this. In light of such a crisis and probable persecution, which is what I think he's driving at here, it is easier for the unmarried man and the unmarried woman to remain devoted to the Lord because the married will have concerns about their spouse during a persecution and during that difficulty. It is far easier when you only have to worry about yourself when the persecution comes for being a Christian than if your spouse is also being persecuted for the cause of Christ and the additional difficulty that would come from that. And that's his concern here with that. And I think, well, we can understand that truth. As I read that, I thought about that. I thought, and I think anybody here, any man who's married can relate to me on this. Don't think I'm alone. So when I'm in college, single man, I really don't care what I eat. You know, if it's Totino's pizza rolls out of the freezer one Night and then the next day, you know, the, the best thing in the world where uh, do they still sell the plastic packages of totally brick hard noodles that all you have to do is throw in water and voila, there's dinner. Fifty-nine cents. Great meal. I mean, I was eating three bucks a week, not a problem, just perfect. You know, I am rich. Three bucks, I got dinner every night. No problem, not gonna change up. Chili out of a can, no big deal, right? Another fifty-nine cents, great dinner. You become married. Well, I don't want my wife to have to eat like that. <laughs> I didn't care about it for myself. Sure, whatever. I'll eat junk. Whatever's the cheapest thing I can find. Just add water, whatever. Doesn't matter. You get married. Now I have a different concern. Now, like, well, I need to take care of her and provide for her and not make her eat the garbage and filth that I've been eating for the past four years. I need to do something to kind of help that out. That's the idea of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In times of distress and crisis and persecution, the unmarried go, hey, you know, I'm living for the Lord. Let's go. Bring it on. But you bring a spouse into that scenario. And he or she is being persecuted for the cause of Christ and your interests become divided. It's not a criticism. It's just stating a simple truth. 
It's just stating a simple truth. He's not cracking on the married here and saying, you got a problem because you're being undivided. He's saying that's what will happen. And that's the whole point that he gets here. Verse 32, I want you to be free from that anxiety. I know what's coming. I know this distress is going to come upon us. And I'm trying to keep you from worldly troubles is the language he used in verse 28. And he uses it then in verse 32 to be free from anxiety. To verse 32. That you would have promote this good order about you. I'm trying to keep you from these things. And so that's the message that I believe he is trying to get across to them is that there is going to be a temptation to no longer live an undevoted under or excuse me, undivided with undivided devotion to the Lord any longer. You're going to come into this crisis and suffering and difficulty and your faith is going to be challenged. And you may not be wanting to fully give your life to the Lord anymore because of this marriage that you were trying to protect and maintain. He's concerned about that. Now, I think this becomes a really useful spot to consider for us some some applications because You'll consider what the reason why Paul is so concerned about this is because his point is that whether you are single or whether you are married, you are supposed to live with an undivided devotion to the Lord. That's his whole concern right here is that when this persecution and crisis and suffering arises, you might lose that undivided devotion. You may no longer be fully living for the Lord. Your interests will become divided and you'll no longer follow him. And I think what is so important to see is that there is a danger of allowing our family then to take our eyes away from serving the Lord with all of our heart. That's really why he's writing this. This is why he's saying to the betrothed and to the unmarried, you're better off waiting because this is going to be bad. This is going to be awful. And I'm trying to promote good order so that you aren't troubled, that you don't have anxieties, that you aren't dealing with these worldly difficulties, that you would remain undivided in your devotion to the Lord. It is a reminder to us that though we are married and have responsibilities to care as fathers and mothers, and children and parents and the various roles that we possess as a Christian in our family dynamic that those obligations are not excuses to no longer be fully devoted to the Lord. And unfortunately, I believe that frequently is the case. That we have come to a time in American Christianity where we define faith and spirituality as taking care of the family. That's not what the scriptures say. Yes, we must care for our family and be good fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and parents and children. We have all those obligations. We know the scriptures tell us that you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't care for your family. We understand that. But that doesn't mean that family becomes the priority, that family becomes number one, or that you are serving God because you're taking care of your family. And I'm just focused on that. You know, I've got family. I've got to take care of them. Well, think about how many times Jesus talked about the need 
to forsake family. He's talked about that an awful lot. Even when people here he is teaching, people come in and go, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And he goes, who are my mother? Who's my brothers? Undivided devotion to the Lord is what you see. We see a situation where a guy says, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my father. Who goes, let the dead bury the dead. And you come follow me. Whoever's not willing to forsake mother, father, brother, sister, cannot be my disciple. He expressly said that. And this is what the Apostle Paul is concerned with here, is that these who are in relationships are going to get married and they are going to lose their undivided devotion to the Lord because of a crisis and distress that is coming upon them. And my concern is we are tempted to do it without the present crisis. His concern was there's going to be really hard times and you're going to be tempted to focus on the family and not be completely devout to the Lord. And sometimes in our own language, we will use our family as an excuse of why we're not devoted to the Lord. Willingly. Under no compulsion whatsoever. We just choose family over God. Family obligations over what God has called us to be and do, to serve, to worship, and to live for Him with an undivided devotion. We need to be very careful, friends, because it is easy to be tricked into thinking, well, if I'm spending family time, that's my spirituality and God's happy with me. Family time's good. But that is not a substitute for all that God has called you and I to do as brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. That's not the sum total of what it means to be a worshiper of God. And so we must be very careful about that, that we do not choose to put family in ahead of God. Remember how often God tried to teach his own people and teach Israel that nothing can ever come before our God. Very first commandment. Here comes the people of the Hebrews as we're about to become people of Israel. They come to Mount Sinai. You're not to have any other gods before me. No idols. Nothing comes ahead of God. And sometimes we kind of can get tricked into thinking that this is our spirituality. This is our worship. And not recognize that our devotion may be absolutely divided and taken away from fully following and serving the Lord our God. Verses 36 to 38. He recognizes while this is the important advice that needs to be given to them, that there is an impending crisis and difficulty that is coming upon them. And he does not want their interests to be divided. He does not want them to lose sight of the most important thing of serving God and how that would increase in difficulty by being married, that you would have the temptation to turn your eyes away from the Lord and focus on the family rather than being devoted to God. He then in verse 36 reminds them and says, but if your passions are strong and you are not then possessing self Control, then you better go ahead and get married. He's pointed that out back at the very beginning. Uh, you are to exercise self-control before marriage. 
And he points out here, if you are not behaving properly, you can fill in the blank on that one. It's a very nice idea there. You are being inappropriate in your relationship and you're touching and all of that. And you're doing things you ought not to be doing as if you were married, but you're not. He says, then you need to get married, which I believe this is very useful to underline as another important point. Even engaged couples are not allowed to engage in sexual activity until they're married. I get that one. I, you know, you guys are preachers, you get all kinds of interesting questions. That's one of the top ones. Well, we're engaged and we're going to be married. Doesn't matter. And they were legally bound to get married. And it still didn't matter. You don't have sexual activity before marriage period. Even if we end up in the ancient Near Eastern times and you are legally obligated to get married one day, God still says no. And that's what he's pointing out in verse 36. If you end up not behaving properly in this relationship, even though you're about to get married, that's a sin. You better get married. As what you're doing outside of marriage is a sin before God. God keeps saying this over and over again. Sexual purity has to be maintained. It has to be maintained throughout this relationship. It must be maintained at all times. It doesn't matter what your circumstance is. So if you are single, even if you're about to be married, we've been together all these years or whatever excuse we want to make. God makes it very clear that then you need to get married if you're not going to behave properly. That's why I love verse 37. Great language there. Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart. He just says, and here's an individual who says, I'm not falling into sexual temptation. I have determined it in my heart and we are going to stay pure. And that's what he says. If you can do that, then verse 37, then to keep her as a betrothed, you're going to do well. You'd be better off not getting married for the present distress that's coming upon you. You're better off with that decision. But verse 36, he's saying, I recognize not everybody can do that. And so if that's the case, you better marry rather than being committing sin. But understand the anxiety and the difficulty that's going to come upon you. Can you imagine being the Corinthians and reading this letter and going, man, what is about to happen? I mean, this is frightening to hear news of the present world is going to be gone. The way that we understand and do things in this world is not going to be the same anymore to prepare themselves for the difficulties and troubles that were going to come with that. Verse 39, he now restates a, a, a truth about marriage. The wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is free to be married to who, whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Simple point. When you're married, you're married and you're staying married until your spouse dies. Simple point. This is a covenant. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is not a commitment. This is not a contract in Kleenex. This is for life. Marriage is for life. You will not divorce. You are staying together and you are bound together as long as your spouse lives. Divorce is not to be an option. And it is only when your spouse dies that that was supposed to be when you were free to be remarried. That's the picture that he gives. And that's the seriousness 
awareness of the situation before them. Understand what you're entering into. Understand that with this present distress, you're going to be staying together. You've got to go through this crisis, suffering, persecution, distress that's coming upon you. You're not walking away from it. Marriage is supposed to be for life. Now, the other big question that comes up, I won't dodge it. Here we are. Only in the Lord. What? What is that? All right. What is he talking about right here? All right. Let's keep all of our key observations in place. Notice he did not start off here and go now to the widows, I say, and change gears, did he? Same paragraph, same section. Same thing we're working on right here. So we haven't gone down to the unmarried or to the widows or to the married. I say this new command. Same paragraph, same scenario. So our context is still about a present crisis. What often this text is used is to say, well, widows are only allowed to remarry another Christian. Problem one. That's not our context. Our context is all about an impending crisis. All right. Uh, Second problem. Back when he talked to the widows back in verses eight and nine, he didn't tell them that, did he? To the unmarried and the widows, verses eight and nine, I say this. And he said they were free to marry. There was no other obligation. There was no constraint, no other restriction that was given to them earlier in this paragraph. This one is really important. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul commands the widows to remarry, he says, if you were 60 or over, you were allowed to be put on the roll to be taken care of. But if you were under 60, Paul says, you're supposed to get married. He does not give this obligation that you had to only marry a Christian. That should be very significant to us. Did he give two different commands to two different groups? No. What he's doing is he is telling them again about this impending crisis. We are in that context again. In fact, you see that in verse 40. Yet in my judgment, she is happier to remain as she is. Hold the phone, Paul. When you wrote to Timothy, you said if she's under 60, she has to be remarried. And now he comes along here and says, you know what? You're better off if you don't. Well, how do you reconcile? Except we have a present crisis that is in view right here when he says this. That was the rule that he gave to the widows. They were supposed to remarry. But here he gives this and says, listen, in my judgment, you're better off not because of what we've been talking about. Because of the situation that befalls us here with this impending crisis. Just as he said to these betrothed, you should try not to get married. You'd be better off if you don't. I'm trying to present you from worldly troubles. The same thing to these widows, same instruction. You're better off not marrying. That's what verse 40 says. In my judgment, you're better off. Not a sin if you do. That's what he's colored this whole thing with. This is my judgment about these things. But if you do, then you are fine. So that's how we have to understand this only in the Lord dissection of what he's talking about. This direction is concerning the impending crisis. You're better off not marrying. If you do marry, then you would be better off with the Christian because it's going to be hard through this. But that was not a universal command that was constrained here. First Timothy 5 is very important to that where Paul does not say that at all. And if you go back just a few verses, even Paul did that in verses 8 and 9 where he said that they had the right to marry. Now, conclusion. Here we are. Finally made. 
You've come a long way with this study. And I thought the most useful thing that we could do after, what has it been, five weeks or so of, of this, is to basically encapsulize the key teachings concerning being single and being married that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Number one, we saw, you can live a single life and be pleasing to God. Stop telling single people or asking them, when are you going to get married? It's okay that they're not married. It's totally fine. You don't have to be married. You can be single and be just as pleasing to the Lord as long as you're exercising self-control and sexual purity. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, that's what he's doing, and you're able to do that as well. So, single life is fine. He also described in those first seven verses that sexual relations is a right and it is a blessing that is not to be withheld and is supposed to be in marriage. So he gave them that warning and described that for them. Uh, within marriage, that's where sexual relations are to be, not outside of marriage at all. And it is a blessing and a right that comes of being married together. Then he told us marriage is for life. He told us there in verse 10 and verse 11, do not divorce. Do not divorce. Do not divorce. You don't divorce. Marriage is for life. You don't divorce. And then he said there in verse 11, and if you do divorce, which doesn't make it okay, it's a sin. He said, don't do it. But if you do divorce, then he said, here's your option. You either remain unmarried, number one, or option two is you become reconciled to your former spouse. That was the only directive that he gave. If you do divorce, you have to stay unmarried or go back to your former spouse. The only exclusion to that that we read about anywhere in the New Testament is in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, where Jesus said, if the cause of the divorce was for sexual immorality, only then are you free to marry. Otherwise... It is a sin. So if you divorce, it's a sin. If you remarry, it's a sin. Unless the divorce was for sexual immorality. Then to go a little bit further. So what if you did remarry? Well, that's a sin. And if the cause of your divorce was not for sexual morality, you are committing adultery. That's what Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 both say. Jesus' own words, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So we're not making it up. Jesus said it. If you divorce and it's not for sexual immorality and you remarry, you are committing adultery. That is an adulterous relationship. The only way for that to stop is for the sinful marriage to be severed. I didn't have room on the screen. Look at Romans 7 verses 2 and 3. Romans 7 verses 2 and 3 describes the woman there as an adulteress all the days of his life. Speaking of the spouse, she's still bound to him and that's an adulterous situation. Until that spouse passes away because she's still bound to him. So for the adultery to stop, the sinful marriage must be severed. And then you're back to 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. Remain unmarried or be reconciled. Then we came to verses, verse 15 through verse 24, where the Apostle Paul taught, if you're married to an unbeliever, stay married. You don't divorce somebody just because they're an unbeliever. You stay married to that situation. He even said, how do you not know that you may even save them? You don't know if they'll come to the Lord themselves. If the unbeliever divorces the Christian because you are a Christian, doesn't mean you have a right to marriage, remarriage. It just says, okay, they're going to leave. 
must remain unmarried or be reconciled. We talked about that word bound. That bound word is not about marriage. That word is about enslavement. And then finally, if your spouse dies, you have the right to remarry also. There you go. All of it in one big swoop. The Apostle Paul goes through this very lengthy, long discussion. It is the longest treatment of marriage and divorce that we have in the Scriptures. I encourage you to read it for yourself. Study it again for yourself. If you ever have questions about it, turn to this text and look at it again and again and again. As a careful Bible student, looking at the right group of people when you're reading, are you in the unmarried paragraph? Are you in the married paragraph? Are you in the believer married to unbeliever paragraph? Are you in the betrothed in a present distress paragraph? Find the right spot to take the right teachings. And as always, you can ask me any questions anytime about those things. You can bring those questions here Wednesday night. And if you have a particular question about your circumstance, your situation, I would be happy to meet with you in private at any time to help apply the scriptures to your situation. Because I recognize that most marriages and most situations are often not the cleanest, simplest scenario. And it requires a little bit of figuring out, okay, here's what happened, what do we do? And I'll do my best to help you with your circumstance apply God's word to your life. But this is the general teaching And if there's a way we can help you obey God's law, that's what we're here to do. You pull your song books out. We're singing an invitation song. And we invite you to come to Jesus. We invite you to see that the reason why that he gave these laws and he gave these rules is because this is for our good. This is for our benefit. That God made man and woman to be together for life. And that was a great blessing that God has given to us to enjoy and to appreciate that we are not to destroy and that we are not to set apart at all. And so often that's what happens in our world. We read this text and we can step back and recognize, quite simply, there's way too much divorce going on in our society, isn't there? Because that's not what God commanded. It's not what God had in mind for marriage. Marriage is to be for life. And may we then uphold God's law very carefully and follow Him with all of our heart. Can we help you then turn to God? Will you turn away from your sins? Confess Jesus to be the Son of God. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins to walk in fellowship with Him and to be a child of His. Will you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?